get started shortly here, this lesson. Um, and uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, today's lesson is difficult. Um, Father, I pray that you would help illuminate our, our minds, give us eyes to see all the riches and excellencies of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. <clears throat> okay, so last week we meditated on the deity of Christ as we saw his unveiled glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Today we will be in the Garden of Gethsemane and we come face to face with his humanity. If you haven't grabbed one already, there are some uh, handouts in the back there. And as I prepared for this lesson, I came across two struggles. One was the struggle of Jesus with his own emotions, his intense sorrow and grief in the garden. And the other struggle was my own, struggling to wrap my mind around the whole person of Christ, namely the, the hypostatic union, how God the Son took on human nature yet remained fully God at the same time. So before we go into the text today, I, I think it would be beneficial for us to consider a few things regarding the person of Christ. Jesus Christ is the God-man, like truly and completely God and truly and completely man, one person with two natures. The, Cal the Council of Chalcedon during the 5th century defined these two natures as two natures without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. They are distinct, inseparable, united, but not mixed. All in one person, the person of Jesus Christ. So that was what I was trying to wrap my mind around. This was brought into the effect at the incarnation, and it leads us to consider three things. First consideration is God the Son, Jesus, did not just encounter humanity when he was on earth, but he actually experienced it, and he experienced it completely, right? We know that he experienced birth, growth, sleep, hunger, thirst, temptation, exhaustion, anger, sorrow, compassion, love, joy, suffering, and ultimately, death. And he experienced all of this without the corrupting influences of sin, so even though he has a human nature, unlike every other man that's ever lived, he did not have a sin nature. Our second consideration today would be how, let me ask you this, how many wills does Jesus have? Now, I'm not talking about the, the legal document that tells us what to do you know, after someone passed away, but, but the, the faculty that, that people use to make choices, right? Does Jesus, the incarnate God, son of God, have one will or two wills? One will, two wills? So he has two wills, right? Jesus had two distinct wills, a human will and a divine will. Each nature possesses its own will. So you can't say that Jesus was fully human and, and say that he didn't have a human will, right? He wouldn't be truly human without that. So keep that in mind. And our third consideration is the idea of progressive knowledge. Jesus had to learn. Right? He was not born into this world as a baby who instantly knew everything that there was to know. 
right? Nor did he somehow uh, just plug in to his divine nature and got information whenever his human nature needed it. No, being fully and truly human means that Jesus had to grow and develop just like any other human being. It says in Luke 2.40, and the child grew and became strong. He grew physically, right? He had to learn how to eat, how to crawl, how to stand, how to walk, how to run. He also had to learn how to read, how to write, and how to speak. He also had to learn languages, most likely Hebrew and Aramaic. And most importantly, he had to learn the scriptures, just like every one of us. At the age of 12, his parents found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. It says in Luke 2, verse 46. Later in verse 52, in the same chapter, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. As he studied the scripture, he grew in knowledge of his knowledge and understanding of his identity and his purpose. And with that, he also grew, um, sorry, grew in knowledge and understanding of his own identity and purpose. So let me ask you this. When do you think Jesus came to realize that he was God incarnate? I mean, surely when he was born as a baby, he, I don't think that was in his mind. So what point in his life did he realize that? Okay, so, so like all of you, I don't know the answer to that either. <laughs> All right. So scripture doesn't tell us, right? Um, so scripture does not address that. But we do know that at, by the age of 12, when Jesus and uh, when Joseph and Mary, you know, being the great parents they were, uh, lost him and found him in the temple, his response to them was, um, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So it shows that at that point, he was at least somewhat aware of his identity, Right, calling God his father. Um, so we don't, we don't know exactly when, but we do know that by the time Jesus started his ministry at around the age of 30, he was clearly, he was very clear on his identity and his purpose. He knew exactly who he was at that age. So as we come to this text, we should not think that Jesus acquired information about his future all at once, that he suddenly became aware of the suffering he would endure, Right, as, he, as he learned the scriptures and he grew in knowledge, he, 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 I'm sure he understood that more and more. And more than, likely, so more than likely, Jesus was living his life under the shadow of the cross. That at some point in his life, he understood what the scripture says about the suffering servant, and he had to come to terms with that, the fact that he is a suffering servant. But there is a difference between knowing that something is coming and seeing it in front of you, Right? Seeing that it is now here, the hour has arrived, the, cut, the time has come. And in this moment, the cross is only a few hours away. So at Gethsemane, Jesus comes face to face with the reality of the cross. And we, we will see the anguish that it brings him. So again, three considerations. Jesus was fully and truly man, except without sin. And he experienced humanity completely. Jesus has two wills, a human and a divine will. And third, he grew in knowledge and wisdom as he developed from a baby to an adult. Um, and this includes the knowledge of Scripture as well. As we enter this text, keep these three considerations in mind. Also recognize that at times we will have to do some speculation, right? Some, and, and not just blind speculation, but I was educated speculation, right? Because based on, 
based on this short passage, it doesn't have all the information we need, but um, knowing what we know of the whole Bible, um, what the Bible has revealed about the person of Christ, we can speculate on some things. So uh, today we will be in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 46. Twenty-six, verse thirty-six reads: Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, "Sit here, while I go over there and pray." And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, "My soul is very, very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me." And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, "My Father." If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinner. sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So to set the context for this moment, we, it is the day before the cross. right? Jesus sends Peter and John to prepare the Passover meal. And later that evening, he celebrated the Passover with the Twelve, during which he washes their feet and then also instituted the Lord's Supper. That night, he also predicted two betrayals, one from Judas and one from Peter. At the close of the Passover meal, Jesus takes his followers, leaves Jerusalem, and goes on to the Mount of Olives. They cross, they cross the Kidron Valley and ascends the mountain to a place called Gethsemane. So the Garden of Gethsemane is actually an olive grove. The word Gethsemane itself means oil press. It is a place where they would use heavy slabs of stones to, to crush olives into a pulp and, and have the oil slowly squeeze out, and then they would collect the oil. It, it is a fitting metaphor for what Jesus would experience in that garden that night under the crushing pressure of the cross. Now, this was not the first time they have been to Gethsemane. John 18.2 says that Judas knew the place because Jesus, Jesus often met there with his disciples. It was a place they were familiar with, a place perhaps they, Jesus took his disciples to be uh, alone or a place uh, like a, a hideaway or a place of quiet, a peace, a uh, place of refuge. Um, and remember that at this point, Jesus had already confirmed that Judas would betray him. And more than likely, Judas would have expected Jesus to go to Gethsemane that night, as he often did before. Yet Jesus did not try to hide or run away from Judas. He intentionally went to Gethsemane, knowing that it would lead to a cross. So Jesus took the 12 disciples to this garden. I'm sorry, took the 11 disciples to this garden. Remember, Judas had already left at that point. And leaves eight and takes Peter, James, and John further in. Again, we see the same three disciples, Peter, James, and John. Remember, these are the same three disciples we saw last week on the Mount of uh, Transfiguration. 
They were also the same three disciples who witnessed Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. And now here they are again in the garden with Jesus. You could say that these three are his inner circle, those closest to him. And as we discussed last week, Scripture doesn't tell us exactly why um, Jesus chose these three specifically, but perhaps he did it to prepare them for um, their leadership roles, which they would later have in the church. Or perhaps they were chosen simply to be eyewitnesses of the uh, special events. But in the case of Gethsemane, I think, I believe they serve another purpose, which we will get back to later. So now we come to verse 37. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be very, to be sorrowful and troubled. The Greek words used here by Matthew connotes the idea of deep grief and deep emotional distress, usually associated with death. One commentator says, to be sorrowful and troubled hardly does justice to the Greek verbs which suggest an anguish of wretchedness. This was a deep and intense sorrow. And to add to Matthew's description, we have it described in Jesus' own words in verse 38 when he says, Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Another translation reads, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. This intense sorrow is felt deep inside Jesus' soul and into his inner being. And it overwhelms him. He feels it enclosing on him, pressing down on him, crushing him under his massive weight like a stone slab rolling over an olive. It is so overwhelming that he felt it in his whole person, even to the point of death. Now I believe that the agony and pressure was so great that Jesus was really physically close to death. This, was, this wasn't just a saying where, a saying like, I'm so grieved I'd rather be dead or um, I'd rather die than feel this way. No, I, I think that this sorrow is so deep that it almost kills. Right? In Luke's account in chapter 22, 44, he says of Jesus being in agony, he says, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. So some consider Luke's description as merely a simile, right, to show the intensity of his anguish that, that he didn't really sweat blood, but it was like that. Well, I don't, I don't think that is true. I, I believe that, blood, that the blood was real, that Jesus really had blood dripping out of him. And medically, we, we know that there exists a rare condition called hematidrosis, in which the capillary blood vessels, um, actually, that the ones that feed the sweat glands, rupture, and causing them to exude blood. And they say this is usually caused under extreme physical or emotional stress. So I think that's what Jesus experienced at that, in that moment. That he was under such extreme emotional distress that his blood vessels burst, and he actually sweated blood. Just as the oil oozes out of the olive as it's being pressed by a stone slab, Jesus' blood here oozes out of him under the pressure of the cross. To help us further understand the agony that Jesus was in, Luke stated in his account in verse 43, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Consider the perplexity of that moment. God the Son being strengthened by an angel. It says in Hebrews 2.9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than angels. In that moment, who was, who was the strong one? Who was the weak one? 
Was it not Jesus who needed strengthening from the angels? So here we see that reality, that in Jesus, his weakness, that in Jesus, in his weakness as a man, he was lower than the angels and needed his strengthening at that moment. That is quite an amazing thing to consider. <clears throat> Verse 38 ends with Jesus telling the disciples, remain here and watch with me. So the verb watch here means to be vigilant, to be watchful, to keep awake. In light of the context, I, I believe it also means to be, they should be praying. As Jesus was praying, they should also be praying with him. Right, and notice it says, watch with me. As I mentioned earlier, I think the presence of the, the disciples served another purpose. And I believe in his humanity, Jesus may have wanted his closest friends there with him for comfort. For comfort. So although we will see, soon see that their failure to stay awake is not very comforting, I believe that just their presence there is. So when we think of people who are close to dying in their last moments of their lives, what is, what is most important to them? Family, right? The presence of family members or close friends, right? And I believe it's no different for Jesus, right? In his weakest moments, in his last days, um, he wanted companionship and encouragement from his friends. So at this point, we must ask, what is the source of Jesus' sorrow? What is that stone slab that is pressing down on him in Gethsemane? The weight of the sins of the world? Well, I believe the answer lies in the prayer to his father in verse 39, which is similar to what Dennis was saying. He says, and going a little farther in, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So we see that this cup is a source of his anguish and sorrow. But what is this cup? What does it represent? Right. So that is the that is the the judgment for the sins of people in the world. Right? So in the Old Testament, a cup is often a representation of God's wrath and judgment. Psalm 75, verse 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51, 17 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, to the bowl, the cup of staggering. In Jeremiah 25, verse 15, it says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of, of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. The cup of God's wrath reserved for sinful man, now given to the Son of God, the sinless man. Jesus, who was sinless, was made to be reckoned sin. He was made sin, him who knew no sin. On his way to the cross, Jesus will endure physical and emotional suffering. 
but the spiritual suffering of being the object of God's wrath causes him the most anguish and dread. So Jesus prays to his father, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. In his commentary, MacArthur says, Although Jesus consistently called God his father, only on this occasion did he call him my father, intensifying the intimacy. In Mark's account, he adds that Jesus also addressed him as Abba, Father. So Abba is an Aramaic word of endearment, roughly equivalent to, in our language, saying daddy, right? And addressing God in such a way would have been unthinkable to the Jews. They would have seen it as presumptuous and almost blasphemous. Yet Jesus can and does address that way, and it shows us the type of relationship he has with his father, which is an intimate and loving relationship between a father and a son. So here we see the son appealing to his father, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. So let me ask you, are all things possible with God? Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes, all things are possible with God. And you can see it in Mark's account that uh, the prayer is recorded this way, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. So we know that all things are possible for God, but though God is able to do all things, he will only do it under one condition. What is that? If it is according to his will. Right? And we see that Jesus acknowledges this in the second part of his prayer. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is essentially asking, Father, within your will, is there another way? Is there any other way to redeem mankind? Sinclair Ferguson says here, here bound before his father, the second person of the Trinity, incarnate in flesh, body, and soul, he wrestles with the divine will. In his humanity, Jesus' deep desire was to, be, was to be spared from God's wrath. But deeper still was his desire for, God, for his Father's will to be done. It says in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So here we see Jesus' human will was distinct from the Father's will, but was never opposed to it. His will was, their wills were never opposed. So he says, nevertheless, not, at, not as I will, but as you will. Luke's record would say, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus began his prayer with his humanly desires, but ended it with God's will. So the narrative continu continues with Jesus returning to his three disciples and finding them asleep. Right, it's quite amazing to see that these three same disciples who we saw falling asleep last week on the Mount of Transfiguration are found again asleep in the garden. <clears throat> and the discovery must have added to, to Jesus' distress, as we can see from his response when he says, so could you not watch with me one hour? 
So again, Jesus tells them to be watchful, to be spiritually alert and pray so that they do not fall into temptation. So what do you think the temptation he's talking about is here? What do you think he's referring to? The te- te- temptation to fall asleep? I mean, possibly, that could be it. But I, I think here is, is, it probably is more than just fall asleep. Perhaps it's a reference to the prediction he gave to them earlier that night that he, when he said, you will all fall away because of me this night. So there's a temptation that they, they, they would desert him. And even to Jesus specifically, he says, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he warned them of all that before that night. So perhaps there was that temptation, or you know, perhaps he was talking about the, the temptations, the schemes of the devil. Right? If you guys recall back in Luke chapter 4, after Jesus was tempted by the devil, it says in verse 13, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And surely this would be an opportune time in the garden. During his lowest point, the devil would be there in the garden to try to tempt them to foil God's plans up to the last moment. So possibly he was warning about that temptation from the wicked one. So I can't help but wonder if Peter was thinking about this moment in the garden when he said in 1 Peter 5, chapter 5, verse 8, when he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So I can't just imagine the devil roaming around that garden, trying to tempt them, trying to foil God's plans. And he warns them, you should, you should be alert, be watchful, be praying. And Jesus ends with a famous saying, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Right? He's, he is sympathetic with them. He acknowledges that disciples want to obey Jesus and do what is right, but their external flesh lacks the strength. One commentator says Jesus is making a distinction between man's physical weakness and the noble desires of his will. So as born-again believers, we, we can all re- kind of relate to that, right? We have a desire to please God. We have a, the capacity to please God. But at the same time, we still have that dreadful sin nature within us, the flesh that wars against our, our, new, our new nature. Right? So Jesus recognized that, encourages his disciples to be watchful and pray. <clears throat> but even still, we see that he will come back to them later on and find them asleep again in verse 43. Because they says, for their eyes were heavy. So at this point, it must have been very late in the night. Some people think it's maybe even past midnight. So they must have been exhausted. But ultimately, it seems like the disciples were not able to overcome their flesh. With that, Jesus goes away and prays a second time, saying in verse 42, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. It is as if in God's silence, Jesus received an answer to his first prayer. He said, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. No, my son, there is no other way. You must drink this cup. If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, Jesus received no audible answer from God. So there is no other way. Matthew records in verse 44 that Jesus went away 
and pray for a third time, saying the same words again. Three times the beloved son prayed, pleading and agonizing to his father. And three times he received the same answer. Three times Jesus says, your will be done. And three times God essentially replied, this is my will. You must drink this cup. This is what Isaiah means in chapter 53, verse 10, when he says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And that is the reality of this situation. God the Father was that stone that crushed his son. It was the will of the Father to crush his son. And it was the will of the Son to obey his father to the point of death, even death on the cross. Having his father's will confirmed three times, Jesus is now resolved to fulfill it. The passage ends with Jesus waking the disciples up, saying, See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. There is no more uncertainty. There is no more pleading. There is no more sleeping. There is only the cross. And Jesus fully yields himself to the will of the Father by allowing himself to be arrested. Sinclair Ferguson says, the New Testament describes the work of Jesus on our behalf in several different ways. But central to them all is his obedience. The obedience of Christ. Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Despite all his anguish and sorrow in Gethsemane, and every fiber of his being wanting to be shrink away from God's wrath, wanting to be spared from that cup, Jesus obeys to the very end. Hebrews 5.8 says, Although he was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered. So we must not think that the obedience of Christ came easy for him. Just because he is divine, the Son of God, doesn't mean that it was natural and effortless for him to obey the Father while he was on earth. No, Jesus became a man, and like all of us, he experienced suffering fully as a man. But in the midst of all that suffering, he obeyed the Father completely and perfectly every step of the way, all the way to the cross. And we will see that suffering, Christ's suffering and obedience fully realized on the cross next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing to us the death of what Christ became for us. Thank you for helping us understand the immensity of the task that he was called to accomplish for us on that cross. How deep was your love for us that you gave your only son to die for us? And how deep was the son's love for us that he obeyed to the uttermost? We look forward to that day when we can see him face to face. Until then, help us not to sin. In his name we pray.
Amen.